classroom. I just want to let you know that Barbara has an extra copy of the Spirit of the Liturgy, a paperback, right? Yep. And if she has an extra copy, and if anybody didn't buy it yet and would like to buy it, she's got it for sale. So I just want you all to know, see Barbara if you need it. Harrison, hi, how are you? Here he is. Hello, hello. So 
you know, we'll try it. And, you know, I'm uh, flexible uh, to make it work. So let me just, uh, I don't want to hold up any longer, but Gubinda and Thomas, not yet. It takes a while. It's better than it takes a while. I should have come over earlier and put it on because it's a big room. And I'm sure you're all comfortable in your homes. <laughs> right? Okay, so. Let's get some of the technical things organized. Oh, that's good. Okay. Connecticut. Um, uh, I go to St. Marguerite Bourgeois Parish in 
Brookfield, Connecticut. Um, and I'm here because they're making me be here. <laughs> I know, it's a silly here question. Here because I want to be. core requirement, right? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm delighted that you're here, even though we're making you be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be in this course. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Laura Papa. Is that how you say your name? Papa? Papa? Papa. Papa. Papa's fine, yeah. Okay. Um, name's Laura Papa. I'm from Manhasset, New York. I'm in St. Mary's Parish. I still work full-time as an attorney, and I'm doing this really for my own um, edification and to get a deeper understanding of the faith that I was raised in and I practiced, but I was not a part of the Catholic school or whatnot, so it's really for me. Great, and we're practically neighbors. I oh, are we? <laughs> I live up near Glen Cove. Oh, okay. A little further than me. Yeah, a little bit. And uh, you have one of our newly ordained uh, yes. Father Dominic. Father Dominic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. He exactly. just baptized my grandson. Oh, that's so, lovely. Yeah. Take, take his really hands nice. for us. I will. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. And tell him I said hello. <laughs> I will. I will. Great. Uh, Carlos, how are you? Uh, good. Um, just um, what I can say about myself is that first thing is that I'm a religious uh, brother. They would be identity right. missionary. Brother, brother live, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a brother, so I live here in a, in a parish with uh, 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 a good uh, suffering uh, And then, you know, I also um, I took a master's program for um, Catholic philosophical studies. So, you know, in the future, you know, I'm moving to the priesthood. So, you know, right now, I'm just uh, trying to um, go for a master's in theology. And, uh, you know, whenever the, my, my superiors tell me to, you know, to um, start studying um, full time, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead. But now I'm just starting part, part time for this um, master's of theology. Okay. And what parish are you in? Are you on Long Island? Yes, uh, in um, uh, in Luke's church. In Brentwood? Yeah, Brentwood. Yeah, yeah. Okay, see, I get fellow Long Islanders when we do this uh, class like this. That's great. Jackie Totino, hi. Hi, I'm Jackie Totino, and I'm at the Parish of Our Lady Perpetual Help in Lindenhurst, New York, in Long Island. And I'm doing a master's program with my husband, who is in the Diaconite program uh, for Rockville Center. He's going into his third year, so we're going into our third year of the master's program. Well, great. I'm so delighted to have you here. And uh, Jackie's also writing her thesis with me as yes. the director. Yes. yes, and I'm super excited about that. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if I should mention that, oh, but yeah, that's, good. that's the best part. And encourage everybody. Let them know what you're all doing. I She's think awesome. It's great. Um, Anne-Marie Mitchell from New Jersey, right? Yes, and I happen to be very happy you're doing Zoom, Dr. Eschenauer, so thank you for the effort that goes into that. Otherwise, it would have to have dropped out. Um, I'm Anne-Marie Mitchell. I'm married. I have two children and five grandchildren. I was in Connecticut for 18 years and uh, had a relationship at a Benedictine monastery and then um, took that and came down here, and now I'm in diocesan. Um, 
Catholic Church, and so having done a lot of hard things for the church um, in teaching religious education and live nativity, and then the Benedictine, I decided that um, it's time to step in and uh, get some more knowledge and uh, be able to speak to the faith, and um, maybe combine it with some hard experiences in the future. So. Um, and again, I can't thank you enough for continuing with Zoom. Well, that's one thing that the pandemic did for us. Yeah. Um, and we, we uh, as you all know, we expanded our accreditation so we can continue with this. And people are so happy they don't have to drive here from Staten Island. <laughs> Unless you're a deacon candidate. Then you have to come. But anyway, that's great. Uh, and we're delighted that you, you've been able to continue with the program. It's wonderful. So, uh, Laura, do you use your vote? Vin is it Vincente Gomez? Yeah, it's both, but it, it's, I think it's easier to use Gomez. Okay, that's great. It's nice to meet you. Tell us a little something. Are you from Long Island as well? No, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, uh, God's country. <laughs> right, yes. Robert? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, I I got a master's degree in social work. Um, I was working as a social worker for four years, and I always wanted to go back to get my degree in theology um, with the hopes to use it later on and mesh together my experience as a social worker. Um, and you were my first class through this program, and I'm full time. I'm a full time. Oh, student that's now. right. Yes, uh, Dean Hamilton, you can mention that to me. Yeah. Very excited to be here. Wow, yes, three courses I think you're taking? Four. Hear that? <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. That's great. Bill Meyer, good to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Um, my name is Bill Meyer. I, hey. um, I live in Long Island. Uh, I live in Northport. That's Northport right behind me. Um, I'm at St. Anthony of Padua. Uh, parish. I work in the Diocese of Brooklyn, however. I run the uh, media and communications for the Diocese of Brooklyn. I've been doing it now about three and a half, four years. I left my, my life in the secular world of television and media and came to work for the church. And so um, I came to realize a couple of years ago that I really didn't know enough to do my job. So that's why I'm here uh, getting my Masters in Theology to help me keep up with the people I work with. <laughs> well, we're delighted that you're doing that, and it will certainly benefit the Diocese of Brooklyn and beyond. I did that very well. Oh, well said. That's exactly what we say. Brooklyn and beyond. So, and I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you. Harrison, nice to meet you. Sorry, trying to get myself unmuted over here. That's so right. I'm, from, I'm from Long Island as well. I'm in Suffolk County, uh, Rockville Center, number one. And uh, I am the high school teacher. I teach at St. Anthony's. Oh, great. You're a prior. Yeah. Oh, prior, right? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, Mariah, is that right? Am I saying it right? Yeah, okay. that's it. Great. Um, yeah, so my name is Mariah. Um, I am from Somers, New York. Um, I currently reside there. Uh, and I work for the Archdiocese 
um, New York down in Manhattan. I was campaign manager for the Cardinals field. So um, similar to um, Bill, I'm also here to expand my knowledge. So personally, I can like live my faith better, um, but also so I can be better at my work. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to see where it leads. I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you. We're happy to have you. And Miguel, he's been with us before, and he's returning this semester. It's good to have you back. It's good to be here. Just blessed to um, be back and start learning um, liturgy as part of my prayer life as well. So I'm just blessed, and um, it's the first time I have you, so I'm really excited. And you're from the Bronx, is that correct? Yes, I'm from the Bronx, and the closest parish is at St. Simon's Stock. Very good. Excellent. And Govinda, I'm so glad you joined us. Nice. We're just doing a little bit of introduction with our online students. So welcome, uh, Govinda. Um, I'm sorry we had a little confusion with the registration, but all is well. You're here. Thanks. So if you just introduce yourself to the class, uh, your name and where you're from. Sure. My name is Govinda Willer, and I'm from Northport, New York. You have a fellow student, uh, Bill uh, Mayer, who's also from Northport. Yeah, we you know, know each other. Do you know each other? I don't know. I know, I know Govinda since she's a little child. Wow. And I'm friends with her mom for years. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow. And Govinda, you're, you've been in the master's program for a couple of years now, right? Correct. Yes. yes. I remember meeting you the day you came out to Huntington for your interview. We met. So that's great. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, now, uh, I don't know, Thomas, I don't think he's in yet, so we won't work. Well, thank you, everybody. I hope that we can really become um, a, really, a community of learners, even though you know, you're uh, from Brooklyn, Long Island, uh, Connecticut, and New Jersey, that we'll all get to know each other. So that was very helpful. Uh, and as I uh, said, for those of you who signed on a little later, I'm not sharing the screen with my PowerPoint because I prefer to see you in this gallery fashion. Last week I could only see your thumbnail and it was frustrating me. So that's why I sent you the little note to make sure that you have uh, the notes so you can follow along, either on your computer or print it out, however you work that. And, um, you know, for this, uh, Govinda, I think I uh, mentioned to you in uh, the text yesterday, all the notes are always put in files. So you found everything okay? Great. Yes. Okay, terrific. All right, so we're ready to begin. You all ready, too? But, you know, before, before we get to everything, we have to leave behind everything that we came from, we all had long, busy days. Uh, I know I have, and uh, you re-energize you re me when I come here. But, uh, you know, forgetting everything we left behind and everything we'll go back to and just be present to each other in our sacred spaces, wherever that may be, and be present to the course material. And we begin with prayer. And today we celebrate um, the beautiful memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows. So as our prayer, I have chosen the collect from uh, Mass today. So just taking a few seconds to 
Center yourself. Remember, we're always in the Lord's presence. We pray. Oh God, who willed that when your son was lifted high on the cross, his mother should stand close by and share in his suffering, grant that your church, participating with the Virgin Mary in the passion of Christ, may merit a share in his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful um, feast day today. So um, we're starting to look at the historical development of the liturgy. Now, I just, um, last week, remember, uh, I mentioned to you that we start broad, and we keep narrowing down. We're still kind of in a broad mode here. Uh, and uh, we're going to begin to make it open by looking at early development of the liturgy. However, I want you to keep in mind that it's a survey course on liturgy. So we're doing a little bit about a lot of things to give you, uh, the goal is that you have a good understanding of liturgy and how it is celebrated in our church, in the contemporary church, all right? So it's not a course in the history of the liturgy, but we need to uh, start there. So um, the the couple of weeks that we'll do this uh, historical development, we won't be going into depth. I, I, want, uh, I don't want you to get lost in the details. I want you to just have a sense of things. So the first thing I'm going to say that on your syllabus, tonight I had originally put down that I'd take you through the fourth century. Well, we're leaving the fourth century for next week. Because as I was preparing for this, I was exhausted after three centuries. And I said, fourth century, we begin next week. Because there's a lot that happens in the fourth century. So um, that's what we're going to do. Um, so I mentioned uh, last week that uh, advances in the study of the liturgy were made really in the 19th century, right? Um, and as we'll see later on, and I think it's interesting to note that during the Reformation period, you know, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to make a point here. During that time, and that's like 15, 1545 or something like that, but the, the study of, of liturgy, of things in the church, were more of a defensive approach because it was just what was going on. You know, every, what we were doing was uh, trying to counteract the Reformation. So the, I'm mentioning this because now, by the 19th into the early 20th century, the task was simply to study the liturgy of the early church. See, prior to the 19th century, late 19th century, we couldn't study the liturgy of the church because there was no resources available. And they were only beginning to be discovered at that time. All right, so it was a simple task, not to be on the defensive, but just like to, to make this beautiful discovery of, of these wonderful 
resources so that we could have a sense of what the prayer of the church perhaps might have might have looked like. We get hints, all right? Um, and I also mentioned last week, just I like to try to go back before I move forward, that scholars teach us we have to study the past in order to understand the present and then to move into the future, okay? So the history of the liturgy gives us a valuable hint that can help us to understand meaning and practice for today, okay? And um, as we go through early development, a few, uh, in a few places, I'm actually gonna make a connection to what you will, what you probably already know or have heard regarding the church since the Second Vatican Council. So that when we actually study the council documents, you'll be able to see, well, where did this all come from, right? Okay, because remember I told you last week, it was a bold statement, but I said that the Second Vatican Council was quote unquote deeply conservative, okay? And I think I prefaced it last week, and if I didn't, I'll say it again, that I really, in the, for the church, I don't think the words liberal, liberal and conservative are helpful at all, but if you use the terms, people know what you mean. Okay? But I don't think they're helpful. But anyway, okay? Um, so, knowing our liturgical history, and certainly not in depth, we would have to create a course on liturgical history and get Father Matthew Warnes to teach it, okay? Not me. <laughs> but knowing it, having a sense of it, of this development, does not mean that we want to repeat it, okay? But it does mean that we can appropriate it for the present. And that's what the Second Vatican Council accomplished. So our goal starting tonight, and probably for the next two weeks or so, is to just get a sense of how things developed in regard to the liturgy. All right, makes sense? So far, so good, right? So tonight, we're going to look at early development, which would include the apostolic era, which would be considered the first century. And then we'll look at the second and third centuries. And then, as I said, we'll leave the fourth, and we'll start there next week. Okay, so um, beginning with, uh, to start our conversation about the um, history of the liturgy, I want to introduce you to uh, Joseph Youngman. Now, my husband is German. I'm Italian and English. And he always says I pronounce his name totally wrong, that it's more like Youngman. But I always call him Youngman, but anyway. So he always, as a good German, he corrects me. But anyway, I just am introducing you to him because he is a valuable player in the, in, in the study of the history. And um, he's actually from Austria. Uh, he was born in 1889. All of this is on your slides, but I'm just going to make some points about him. But he spent most of his career as a professor of pastoral theology, where he taught both catechetics and liturgy. 
Now, I would have to say that he's probably my patron saint, because that's what I teach, primarily. <laughs> uh, and that is very significant, as I'll allude to in a moment. Catechetics and liturgy, all right? Um, his name is actually synonymous with what was called, is called the charismatic renewal, which was to include more biblical, sacred scripture, um, studies in catechetics, all right? Um, his career and contribution actually blur the lines of distinction between liturgical studies and catechetics because, and this is important, he promoted an interest in early church practices that integrated worship and catechesis. This, this is really important, okay? Because, and this is perhaps a little footnote, uh, some of you who have had me for other courses have heard me say this before, but in the early church, liturgy and catechesis were intimately connected. They were two sides of the same point. <coughs> and that beautiful connection between liturgy and catechesis got blurred along the way, all right? And he was, like Virgil Michael that I introduced you to last week, he was really intent on making this connection, all right? We're not there yet. They're still miles away because with all due respect, and again, some of you I've never taught before, but I have a famous line this is not a judgment, it's an observation, all right? That's very important because I, I use examples and I don't mean it to judge anybody, but in my work around the country and in parish work and everything, I have learned so many things. This connection, you know, here, you know, in the early part of the 1900s, Youngman and others we're trying to show this connection of liturgy and catechesis, and it's in all of the catechetical documents. We're not there yet, all right? We're miles apart. Um, the closest we got in the Diocese of Rockville Center, actually, um, was after the Second Vatican Council, when they were establishing the offices for the diocese, they created an office of catechesis and worship. Somebody got it. Somebody really got the vision. And for years, that's what it was. When I started working um, in Rockville Center in 1990, it was the Office of Catechesis and Worship. It was brilliant. And then probably 10 years later, somebody, I don't know who, came into the office and said, no, no, we got to separate this and have an office of liturgy and an office of catechesis. It was a mistake because they were doing the right thing. But anyway, an observation. <laughs> okay? So anyway, I, I, I'll be introducing you. It's important just to know uh, important figures in, in our history. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, starting with somebody from, you know, more contemporary times and then working backwards because he was studying this history. And that's why I bring him up. Okay? And he wrote a book, actually, that's called The Early Liturgy. 
Benedict XVI wrote. And you remember, there was a book that Romano Guardini wrote, you know, I forget when, but like 100 years ago, called The Spirit of the Liturgy. Keep that phrase in mind, because the spirit of the liturgy, we need to dig deep and we need to find it. We need to find it. And we're going to start to find it tonight, I hope. All right? Because that's really important as we move forward. Because we want to get at the spirit of the liturgy. All right. So um, there's a big, long quote from Youngman that I have on this slide. Um, on the uh, notes, but what I like about it, it is a long quote, but he, Youngman is providing us with an image, and images are always good, I think, you know, to have in mind some kind of an image. And so he says, here research has a very practical bearing on the present. And remember, he's reflecting on the study of the history of the early church, all right? The liturgy of the Catholic Church is an edifice. So he's using a building as an image for us, in which we are still living today. And in essential, it is the same building in which Christians were already living 10 or 15 or even 18 and more centuries ago. It's really quite a beautiful image, I think. In the course of these centuries, the structure has become more and more complicated with constant remodeling and additions, and so the plan of the building has been obscured. So much so that we may no longer feel quite at home in it because we no longer understand it. I think that happened to people at certain times, right? He continues. He says, hence, we must Look up the building plans, for these will tell us what the architects of old really wanted. And if we grasp their intentions, we shall learn to appreciate much that the building contains and even to esteem it more highly. And if we should have the opportunity to make changes in the structure or to adapt, you're going to see when we look at Sacrosanct and Concilium, adaptation is a big part of this whole thing. Um, or to adapt it to the needs of our own people, all right? We will then do so in a way that, where possible, nothing of the precious heritage of the past is lost. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth you having it to have this image of a building. You know, just the, the building that we're in, for the folks up on the screen, this building has been here since 1896. And we're celebrating the anniversary, so we are looking at our past. So I was kind of reminded of that, and that's why I think that this image that Youngman uses just resonated with me so much. And I, I hope it does for you. But I'll be honest with you, I had to read it like five times. And the more I read it and reread it, it just resonated more deeply. And I love that line. For these, it will tell us what the architects really wanted. You know? And that, that's basically, I think, what we're getting at here. All right, you good? 
We're going to see a lot of that, adapted to pastoral necessity, right? Um, that, as I said before, adaptation of the liturgy um, is a topic that's brought up in the Vatican II document. And again, just if I can insert a little footnote here, the problem that we had in the 70s and the 80s was we took it too far. We didn't, and when I say we, you know, many, most people, all right, uh, in parishes, um, they weren't adapting. They were trying to recreate it. And when we, at the end of the course, when we talk about um, really uh, how we put all this into practice, one of the biggest offenders, with all due respect to well-intentioned people, is what uh, we had, what we did in the past, and in some places it, we continue to do, is what we do when we adapt for masses with children. We try to reinvent, and that's not what it meant. All right? So we're going to learn a lot about that. Uh, later on at the end of the course. But that's just an example. Adaptation is... Yes. Excuse me. Sure, uh, please. On pastoral, pastoral necessity, what, what exactly does that refer yeah. to? Oh, very good question. They, you know, feel free if I use terms that you're not used to, um, I, I need to hear that. When we talk about the pastoral, we're talking about the practice of. So, you know, we're in here and we're learning um, so many things about the liturgy, for example, in this course, right? Theoretically, you know, according to documents and texts and commentaries. But the pastoral is, how do we put it into practice in a parish setting? Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's what that means. Yeah, putting it into practice. And we all, I think most of us would know that um, parishes are different cult culturally, and there is a lot of room for cultural adaptation. That is extremely important, but adaptation doesn't mean, you know, make it up. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I once, actually, well, maybe I shouldn't say it, but it was a long time ago, so I can say it. I went to Manhasset. I was invited when Monsignor McCann was the pastor there, I knew him for many, many years, to talk to the school teachers who were wonderful, wonderful, about masses with children. Notice my language. I'm not going to say a school mass. It's the wrong language, but we use it. But it's the wrong language. I brought this up a little bit last week. The proper language is that the language of the church is celebrating masses with children, all right? But anyway, one of the questions that came up uh, after I presented the vision of the church, there's a directory for masses with children, and it, it kind of guides you through um, how you can adapt, not change, adapt. So when I use that as my rationale, but a question came up, well, how do you come up with the theme for the mass? Okay? Some of you, if you've worked in schools or parishes with children, you know what I'm talking about. And my response was, well, there's only one theme. 
We don't need to come up with it because we have it. Can anybody tell me what it is? The Eucharist. The Eucharist? Worship of God. Paschal yes. mystery. Paschal mystery. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the theme, the focus, the center of every Mass. single Mass. That took a big burden off the people preparing for the Mass that they were celebrating with the school children. You don't have to wrap your brains out and think of what well, we need a theme. And today's theme is. It's not the vision of the, the church to do that. So that's just an example of, of practice, parish practice. Um, is the cultural adaptation seen in the early church when they were first starting um, uh, as Christians and the bishops then had to have separate communities because they were so spread out? Is that an example of cultural adaptation? Um, I think... That refers to? Um, uh, yes. I think you're going to hear some of that, of uh, what they had to figure out um, in the, the first century, the ancient church, so to speak, what they had to figure out, particularly when it moved from being the members of the Christian community were not Jewish. Because originally, the earliest Christian communities, they Jewish were Jewish. And as you're going to see in a few minutes, they had a religious background. But then, as things moved on, um, there were pagans, so to speak, that were coming, inquiring about the Christian community. So the approach had to be different. And, and you'll hear some of that tonight. That's a great question. That's great. That's good. Everybody else, you're all with me? Following? Okay. Um, I promise I'll give you a break, but not yet. <laughs> I know, tell me what you do in some of your other classes. About what time do you break? Like 8.15. About 8.15-ish, and that's a reasonable time to get up and stretch? Great. And then we come back and we have an hour. Perfect. So we'll, do, we'll aim for that. Okay, so uh, let's see where I was. Um, okay, so... Just a little commentary that I want to give you in between all these. I'm throwing quotes at you, but you're reading the book, and I, you're, um, I'm just trying to give you a sense of things that I've highlighted in the, in the book that I think will help us move toward looking at this early development. But I, I just want to comment here. There are different ways to study the history of the liturgy. And as I said before, the history of the liturgy could be a course in itself, right? Um, you can study the, for example, you could study the history of each sacrament. For example, in year two, uh, Robert, you'll, in the spring, we're going to look at the history of confirmation. Okay, so that's a, a way, uh, to, or to look at the history of baptism, or whatever. You could look at feasts and seasons of the liturgical year and just have a study on the history of that, okay? And now from my own work, um, my own doctoral work, focused on studying the Paschal Triduum, as I mentioned to you last week, in which I had to discover and get a sense of how the Triduum developed through the centuries and how it changed, all right? 
And then finally, thanks to Pius XII, who's a key mover in this whole thing, a reform began. And that's why in we celebrate the Paschal Triduum the way we do today. And we'll talk about more of that when we look at the liturgical year. But that's just an example. You could break all of this up and you could spend months, weeks, you name it, just studying the history of one thing. And we're trying to look at, that's why I said it's skimming the surface. So uh, the goal here, again, is to give a broad framework of how the liturgy in general uh, developed. And um, I'm referring to, and I think um, on the next, next time I'm going to make sure I number these for you. Uh, but on my, according to my, not counting the first page, it's like the tenth, the tenth screen. But um, I'm quoting from a book called From Age to Age by Father Edward Foley. A uh, wonderful, wonderful scholar. I had the privilege of meeting him about 10 years ago. Um, and he's, uh, he's uh, in Chicago uh, right now. But anyway, in this book, it's on your bibliography. And I meant to bring it, and I forgot I left it home. But anyway, um, he says, in the period after the Second Vatican Council, when we are especially concerned about the participation of the whole worshiping community, it seems particularly useful to consider how worship affected ordinary people. All right, I think that is a significant quote. First of all, because he's making reference to the worshiping community. All right, and this is what I want you to remember, certain things about the ancient church. The ancient church was a worshiping community. That was the model of church. Now, some of you who have already taken ecclesiology <coughs> and you perhaps um, are familiar with um, Cardinal Avery Dulles's models of the church, um, community is one of them. But it's a model that only started to be rediscovered after the Second Vatican Council was lost. All right? But where does it come from? First century Christianity. That's a beautiful thing. This is why I say it's deeply conservative, see? Because we rediscovered, reawakened this idea that we are a worshiping community. And so Ed Foley brings that up, and that's so important, um, I think. And we will discover that all the way through, and we will see where it got lost, and then how, again, it's, it's rediscovered, all right? Um, okay, so, in other words, Foley presents the history of the liturgy from the perspective of people's experience, okay? That's what he's looked, this is his method. As I said, there were many ways to do it, and in this uh, book, Age to Age, if you have a chance, and I think it's in the, I hope it's in the library, but he's got um, uh, diagrams, of ancient ruins and different things like that in there. Uh, so in other words, he, 
he's studying the tangible aspects of the liturgy that have always been important to the experience of worship. And he focuses on the primary symbols of worship itself. And he primarily uses architecture. You know, if you look at, and we're going to talk about this uh, in a little while as well, but if you would look at what the, the space was, um, that would teach you something about how they worshiped by understanding the architecture. He also looks at music, Aldemar, right? Um, the books that were used and the vessels. See, all of this, you know, that we can see, feel, touch, etc. He looks at it from that. So he says, for people of every age, this concrete experience of worship that's seen, heard, touched, and tasted shaped their faith. That's important. Write that down. <laughs> it shaped their faith. Liturgy shapes our faith. Then he goes on to say, and allows us to consider liturgy as a source of belief and theology. Without any explanation, when we, let's just bring it in contemporary times. Without any explanation, we should be able to go to Mass, for example, or another liturgical service, okay? and be shaped and formed and understand who we are as Catholic Christians by the prayers, by the gestures, by the music, by the art and environment. That should happen. So for example, at a funeral liturgy, for example, the Paschal candle is there, right? It should need no explanation. Just by its presence and its use, it should speak to us. And it could speak to each one of us differently of what that means. Connecting baptism, right? With somebody who's called home to God, you know, it's making that connection between their baptism and their death. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, but we don't explain it. We shouldn't have to explain it. If it is prayed well, that's the explanation. It's there. Does that make sense? That's what he's getting at here. The liturgy itself. And remember, when we say liturgy, we mean the prayer, the public prayer of the church. Remember, it's in your notes from last week. Right? The prayer of the church, not our private prayer. The prayer of the church. So the liturgy, no matter what it is, reconciliation, holy orders, anointing of the sick, um, marriage, matrimony, confirmation, the Eucharist, no matter what it is, it announces who we are and who we are to become in Christ. And it's the liturgy itself that does that. And certainly being in a class like this certainly helps to nourish your experience. I'm, I don't doubt that at all. You know, that you're going to say, oh, oh, 
hold your mic. <laughs> Say, oh, <laughs> you know, that's it, you know? Um, and that's what you want to happen. But every single time, for example, you, you leave Mass, okay, on a Sunday, every single time you should be changed. Formed and changed, that you walk out of there a different person in here, interior, your interior. And it, it just does it by what it is. And that is a powerful thing. That was my whole dissertation, that the Pascal Triduum does that. And I spent 250 pages telling how. But that's a, because that struck me. This teaches us something. It teaches us something. Who we are. And just, we all as, you know, as we learn this so that we can bring it to others. I think, you know? I think, I think we, um, Father, um, in intro theology, we talked about the experience of God in sensory experiences. Oh, Father O'Neill. Yeah, um, McDermott, Lane McDermott. Oh, yes, the book, yeah. Yes, I think went into that um, sensory experience and then um, going deeper, deeper, deeper. Yes, always deeper, deeper. That In the liturgical year, the cycle of readings, don't we hear the same readings over and over and over again? Right? But they don't change, but we change. We change. And so we hear it differently. We, we come to it differently. Right? Take today, for example. And you know, um, I'm starting every class specifically with what the day is about. You know, today, and we've had two beautiful feasts so far on Wednesdays, so we're really lucky, I don't know, but it doesn't matter what it is, but today, you know, this Memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows, it's one of my favorites, you know, I just, you know, looking at the seven sorrows of Mary and, and just meditating on Jesus' crucifixion um, through Mary's eyes, now, Year after year, I come to the day, and I can't wait for it. But today was different than last year. And that's what should happen. Because, as Anne-Marie said, we go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that next year, it'll even be deeper. That's, that's the key, that, that we continue to, um, to uh, ask for that. You know, sometimes, I don't know, uh, in my own prayer before a liturgy, or if I've been on retreat, I, I might make my prayer, you know, Lord, what do you want me to hear today? What do you want me to hear? You know, and in a sense, hi, Thomas, I see you on now. Thank you. Um, I, I, and, it's, it, and it's an amazing thing that um, I do leave Mass, you know, with hearing something that the Lord wants to tell me today, through the liturgy, through the prayer of the church, through the particular feast or the saint that we're celebrating. To me, there, it doesn't get better than that. And we need to be able to do that for ourselves, and then we can do it for others in our pastoral situations um, as well. Make sense? I hope. Question. Robert. <coughs> 
what Foley is saying here, while well, I agree uh, with him 100%, is there's a continuing concern or concern about <coughs> the present expression of the So I think one of the problems of all agree is that uh, a lot of young people, a lot of people who are orthodox in the face are very much hungry looking for or not You're you're exactly right. And we kind of alluded to it last week, you know, uh, and we're certainly going to discuss it more when we look at Pope Francis' statement versus Pope Benedict's uh, statement that came out. But see, this is on you. A priestly formation, uh, this is on you, that the liturgy of the Roman Missal, third edition, all right, that's what we call it now, third edition of the Roman Missal, is rich, it's rich, it needs to be prayed, it needs to be prayed, and it can be as rich and as uh, prayerful as going to Mass in the extraordinary form. It depends on, with all due respect, it does depend on the priest celebrants. Because there's a wonderful book, and um, I don't think I put it, I wanted to go easy on the bibliography. I'm trying to think of, I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called Who's Liturgy is it? It's not Father's liturgy. It's God's. God's. It's God's. Jesus. But you won't, won't, you'll hear different things, and now I'm bringing it to a practical situation. Uh, with, my husband works in a parish as the parish musician, and three priests are not on the same page. You know, one will cut, you know, it's planned, prepared, planned is not the right word, the liturgy is prepared between my husband as the director of liturgy and music, the pastor, the liturgy committee. And then, again, it's an observation. Father X will come in on Good Friday and say, well, I'm not doing that. That's not the right thing. But it happens. And it's sad that it happens. It shouldn't happen. <coughs> See what I'm saying here? The liturgy needs to be prayed. That's one thing about um, Father Irwin's book, context and text. The text right, is so vitally important, the prayer of the church. Now, what I call it, and Robert will have this next semester in his MDiv course, when we look at confirmation and the right of Christian initiation of <coughs> adults in that course, I call it, and I borrow, I'm borrowing this from other scholars, a right, R-I-T-E, based approach. That 
that you understand, for example, what information <coughs> means by looking at the text. Look at the right book. What are the texts of the prayers? And then, uh, just following up on Robert's comment, how are those texts prayed? They can be prayed in English with the utmost reverence as they can be prayed in Latin. And I've seen it, and we see it here every day. We see it here every day. And then, sadly, sadly, and remember I told you, I don't want to make liturgical critics out of you, but sadly, we will go to a parish and everything is rushed and not great. So what's the first thing I think that a priest needs to be is a person of prayer. And then the highest form of prayer is the liturgy. And it needs to be prayed with the utmost care and devotion. And then it will touch hearts. That people will see, feel, taste, smell the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've experienced it in English. But it depended on the person presiding over the prayer. That's the like, job? Yes. I'm sorry. Like, I, I work in the city. I sometimes find myself at Mass, Spanish-speaking, <coughs> and you can just feel it. Yes, you can. It's very true. It's true. Yeah. It's a good point. And I think that that's what Pope Francis is getting at in his statement, that we've got a problem here, that we've got a problem. Because, and I know we're going to talk about this in depth, but Benedict XVI allowed it for pastoral reasons, but it went beyond that. I'm talking about extraordinary form of the Mass. But it, it's gone beyond that, beyond that. And I know in the parish I belong to, they have it every Sunday, and it's packed. I, I've been to it, and it's packed. But I have, I feel almost like schizophrenic in a way because it's different readings. That's not a good thing. I don't think, I don't know. <coughs> different feasts, you know, oh, you know, I'll get there. And it's like, oh, we're celebrating that feast? Well, that's not what I prayed in morning prayer today. But anyway, Robert, go ahead, one thing. Not just simply that I agree, it's just that it's very difficult to argue or convince, especially people who are seeking because they come up with a list of religions in terms of their uses. And the 1500, you know, the church is celebrated as a very solemn mass. So it's very difficult to, to you know, advocate for
my, and when it's my opinion, I'll tell you, um, is that there's a misunderstanding on both the side of uh, the pre-celebrant, perhaps, um, and the people of what it is we are doing there. And we're going to talk about that uh, after the break. What we're doing there is in the early church, and it connects with what we should be doing now. Right? But the thing about looking at extraordinary form, right, what's so-called traditional Latin mass, prior to the Second Vatican Council, in the majority of places, it did not look the way it looks when you go to extraordinary form now. It is so well done now. It was not. That's why we needed a reform. There were a lot of things going on. Just take the Paschal Triduum, for example. The Easter Vigil, Easter Vigil was celebrated in the morning without a congregation. Does that, makes no sense, that's a mess. Pius XII saw that, and he began to reform the liturgies of Holy Week. We needed a reform. And that's what people don't understand. It wasn't like it is. So well, quote unquote, staged state. Okay, it's not, it's prayer. And believe me, I appreciate it. And you know why I appreciate it? And then I'll send you a break. And I know we had this conversation last spring in our pastoral ministry class. I don't go very often, but sometimes the time is the time I can go to this. The people that go to it are reverent, dressed appropriately. You can hear a pin drop. They're there early. They're there to worship. We can do that in English. We think our masses in English or Spanish, whatever it is, whatever the case may be, other than Latin. It can be done, and I have seen it done. I have been at uh, masses that are beautifully celebrated, and we have it here every day. <coughs> you can hear a pin drop. You know? So it's, it's helping people to understand, I think, what it is we're doing. Again, an observation. I went to weekday mass at, I go to all different churches because of time if I don't make mass here. And there's a man sitting in the pew and all of a sudden takes up out of the water. I thought, we're not at a baseball game. I, I was at, dear God, forgive me, at an ordination once 10 years ago and the people behind me, family of, <coughs> person being ordained, during Mass said to the person next to him, anybody got any gum? Oh, God. You, see, you see what I mean? We're missing a mark somewhere with, with our people. Of, uh, and we need opportunities to help people understand why we're there and what it means to be there. Paul. Also an observation as well. Because I go to those Masses on occasion myself. And if I, if I were to compare, I would say you know, one of the things I hear a lot from people that don't particularly care for the traditional Mass is that people don't pay attention, they don't know what's going on. It's the way it used to be people praying their rosary, they're looking around, they have no clue. Maybe it was that way in 1963, I don't remember, I was too young. But it's not that way today. The people that are there are so intently focused on worship and prayer. So, to your point, it really doesn't matter if they're speaking Swahili. 
doesn't matter what the language the, the priest is speaking because it's the beauty of the prayers which are right there in the in, in, in the missal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that the people are following along and you, you don't have to speak a word of Latin to get an incredible amount out of that mass because it's pure worship and everybody that is there is there not because they have to be there, to be there. but because they desire to be there because the, the form of worship just brings you someplace else and and I, I would suggest that the people who are there, for the most part, are more focused on the liturgy, perhaps, than those who go to the Novus Ordo. Yes. I agree with you to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and then I promise we're going on a break, because we have a lot more to do. <laughs> the problem that I see is, that, how can I say this correctly, um, is that it's too, when we go to Mass, and you're going to get this when we talk about first century, what it looked like, we are not 900 people in a church building. We are one body, a community of believers at prayer. At extraordinary form, I had a reflection paper from a student years ago. I went to my first Latin mass, and I was there in my own little bubble. That's not what we do at mass. That's not the vision of the church. We're there to pray as one body. So that's the problem I see. But all of the externals, I agree. But the challenge is, how do we bring that to our current liturgy? And it can be done. That Bennett liturgy, that I've had that same exact experience. In my, in my parish, we, we do not celebrate the traditional Latin Mass in my particular parish. The pastor is so involved in the liturgy and, 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 and takes particular care of the liturgy. The masses are so reverent and so beautiful and uplifting that he's accomplished what you're what you're talking yeah. about. So it can be done. Of course it can. But it takes work. When I was on a parish staff and we had 19, a very large parish, 19 people on the pastoral staff, as a staff we spent an entire year studying the liturgy so that we could have like a, the year of the liturgy for our people, you know, to help them to understand why we're there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it has to start with the leadership. And I worked with a pastor that used to say, we can't do it for ourselves, the staff. We can't do it for anybody else. And that's true. So in other words, he was saying, we need to understand the church's vision of the liturgy so that we can help bring people to that understanding. Great conversation. I welcome it. I love it. It's 20 after. Is 10 minutes enough? Is it? All right. Try, we'll try to reconvene it at about 8 Okay? I want to get through century two and three. Parish. Yeah. Graduated in 73. He was the last class. They had to wear a special jacket. We just had to wear, you know, wear a shirt with a collar on the top button, button, a tie. And then every semester we had to take a religion class, and I'd be like, religion, what's that for? 
Here I am all these years later make up, making up what I didn't do back then. See that? That comes back to you. The Lord with a sense of humor. That's right. Oh, let's see. Oh, I think that's three. Is almost everybody back? Is everybody comfortable? Is it two people? No. She can't never go by me. Because you can't go by me. You know, I'm up here. Like, cheerleader. <laughs> Whether it's celebrated well 
or not so well. It's still going on. We're more in baptism too, right? Yes. Baptism, or baptism. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Baptism, very clear. A, an infant, an adult, a child, whoever enters the baptismal font, all right, which is symbolic of entering Christ's tomb. When a person is baptized, they die to themselves. So they die with Christ, and then, so you have to use your religious imagination, even if it means pouring water over your head. You enter Christ's tomb, and you rise to new life with Christ. Paschal mystery, baptism. The sacrament of penance and reconciliation. Confession of sins. You die to your old self, and you rise to new. Every single sacrament. The sacrament, the seven sacraments are liturgy. And that's what we do. We are entering into Christ's paschal mystery in the prayer of the church. Absolutely. Look at um, uh, e uh, night prayer, which I love. It's my favorite, I admit. Rest in the peace of Christ. I love that line. You know, and if you think about the idea, we need rest. Our body and our soul, we need rest. So in a sense, it's dying to the day and then rising to a new day. And that's night prayer. You know, it's so beautiful. Rob, you had to hand up. Yeah, I'm just going to make an observation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was ordained over 20 years ago. So I've virtually been daily mass every day for the last 20 years. And but as far as Mass concerned, I told people that I wish everybody had a chance to stand right there at the altar during Mass instead of sitting in the outcome or watching it stand up. And um, the point is, is that my specific reference is to the epithets. Okay? The, at that point in time, and over the 20 years, I have never not been able to feel it when it happens. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. But at the point, at the point where you're calling down the whole country. Right. We're going to talk about tonight. The other yeah. places. This, this is a point of actually being able to feel it. And I think it's because I'm standing right here at the altar. Okay. And I don't know. I guess my point is, can you feel this sitting out in the congregation? But, All right, I want to change your words a little bit. Liturgy is not about feeling. Mm -hmm. It's about experiencing. But what's the difference between feeling and it's, experiencing? It's different. It's different. Feel, you know, feeling is, it's just not the right word. Words matter. It's about entering into an experience. Sometimes we feel it, sometimes we don't. But if we don't feel it, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. It happens because maybe, it right? is. It happens it either way. The Holy Spirit is coming. Whether you experience it or not, it's that's still right. And we have to consciously. This is this is good. We have to consciously open up ourselves to enter into it. 
to die to ourselves every time we go to liturgy. We are, in a sense, dying to ourselves. Dying to every other thing we might want to do on Sunday. Think about that. So can you, okay, I, I, I think I should be using the word experience instead of feeling. Okay, yeah, analogy. Think, yeah. But can you feel the same thing sitting out in the congregation? That you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Experiencing it when you're right here. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. absolutely. I could be in the back row in the left seat in the church, and I absolutely will experience if I'm open to it. Got to be open to right. it. One Good. of the things that, that helped me a lot when I came back at the church about 15 years ago was when the priest reminded us, pray for faith. Ask God to strengthen your faith. And that's what we're lacking, faith. We want to experience something. We want to feel something. If I go to Mass and I don't, I don't get that, then I don't experience it. Exactly. But it's about faith. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about it's surrender. It's about trust. I can do all things that so God will and is working in our life. I'm and worshiping God. God is not. Remember not last, to give me anything. Yeah, remember last week I said that liturgy is prayer. And with all prayer, it's always God's initiative. And we need to respond to it. It's not me. It's God inviting me to, to this. And I need to be open to it and trust and surrender totally. That's why the example I used before, um, before Mass, I said, what do you want me to hear today? And you know, God is always speaking to us through the liturgy, particularly, and through Sacred Scripture. So many, absolutely. So many different ways. But God speaks so softly, and we have to be quiet, and we have to be open, you know, open our ears, be open. Gospel a couple of weeks ago, remember, the healing? Be open, and it will happen. It will happen, whether we're right there or we're in the back pew. And just a little logistical thing, there used to be a time, this is a whole practical thing, oh, you know, we bring the kids up around the altar for the Eucharistic prayer. Well, guess what? According to the germ, you're not allowed to do that. You know, that's why the deacon kneels down. Because you can't have anybody else look like a consolidator other than the ordained priest. <coughs> so, that's just a little side, little side note, practical stuff. But good. Mm -hmm. I love this. This is so great. So, Carlos, uh, uh, is that you? Why yeah, did I see you, Carlos? Yeah, thank you for that. Oh, thing. you're very welcome. <laughs> Also, it says something about it says something about like in the first place is also present in the liturgy of the hours. Absolutely. Oh yeah. The liturgy of the hours. The liturgy of the hours is the church at prayer. Think about that when you pray morning prayer, evening prayer, whatever. Millions of people are praying the same that, as you are. Yes, it's you are even if you're in your room by yourself. It's the church at prayer. And the purpose of the Liturgy of the Hours is that we're praying for the church. You know, it's a beautiful thing, but it's liturgy. And, and Christ, Jesus Christ, of the, the, the new covenant is there. It's the liturgy. It's there. He's with us. He's present. 
Think about that. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. When you and use an app on that, it tells you how many people are praying at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I have it. Cool. I have it. I have it on here, and I do it. I'm off of books. Don't get me wrong, liturgical books, but this is so convenient because I can pray at any time I want. You know, so that's why I have it on there. But I, I, I am so delighted that you're asking for clarifications and questions. Those of you who I've talked before, you know I like the interaction. Um, I want to try to get through, and then we'll open it up again. But clarification like what, Carlos, do you have your camera on? You, you need to have your camera on. I need to see you, or I have to mark you absent according to our policy. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so I'll open it up again. And if there's anything like that, that was a great question. Clarity. What does this mean? You know, you you got to ask it. Teachers love questions. Okay. Um, so let me just uh, go through um, some of this early development, looking at the apostolic era, which is the first century ancient church. And all of this information, uh, most of what I am going to present to you is from uh, chapter 2 in your text. So, first of all, um, I just want to, I'm actually going to go back to Metzger's introduction, because I think it's worth saying, um, that um, he points out in the introductory chapter that in order to grasp, and we're just grasping this, you know, we're not, we can't, we don't have a movie, you know, nobody took a video of what was going on in the ancient church, so we're grasping at me, meaning from sources and scholars, and we're trying to put together a puzzle, basically. So in order to grasp the early development, we need to understand that the history of the liturgy goes beyond the Christian story. This, to me, is very significant, um, that it goes beyond, before the New Covenant, all right? The history of the liturgy goes beyond that. So um, I, I have number 12 on my paper. I, I think that's accurate. But I'm, I'm making reference to the book, The Church at Prayer, Volume 1, Principles of the Liturgy, A.G. Mortimer. It's on your bibliography. Okay, but I just wanted, uh, uh, I use this quote to back up what I'm saying here. He says, scholars have been devoting their efforts especially to the prehistory of the Christian liturgy, to the beginnings and its relation to Jewish prayer. This is important, okay, and it goes back to what I said before, the first Christians were Jewish, all right? So I, I would add my own commentary to that, that a clear understanding of liturgical reform, all right, is shaped through the wisdom of liturgical history, which includes our Jewish ancestry, because Christianity emerged out of Judaism. And Judaism had an established religious culture and cycle of feasts. We can't forget that. And I will admit to you that I discovered this when I wrote my dissertation uh, almost 10 years ago now. Or 12, I forget, 12 years ago. 
I described this like it was an aha moment. But this goes back. Well, it's right there. In the, I forget what number it is, but Dr. Brampichi talks about to better yes. understand our liturgy. In the catechism, we have to understand Jewish liturgy to understand ours. Exactly. And that's the point I'm making here. And that's why Metzger talks, in his introduction, talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Exactly. So when we look, for example, at the liturgical year, um, you know, in weeks to come, we'll actually look at the development of the liturgical year, right? We will explore this more closely because what we understand as our liturgical year that begins as Advent and goes, you know, to Christmas and ordinary time, Lent, Easter, etc., right, um, was inherited from a faith-filled people who recognized the action and presence of God in their lives, and they had a cycle of feasts already. All right. And we'll see this later, for example, the Exodus, the most obvious, the Passover, right? The celebration of freedom and a new beginning. This was a distinct time of covenant columns, the old covenant, right? And uh, the Jewish people renewed their awareness through ritual. So we didn't make it up. We got it from, these are our roots. This is where we got it from. So we have to keep in mind, and this I think is really important for us as Catholic Christians, that through ritual, using the Passover, the Exodus story as an example, the Jewish people remember. Every year at Passover, they're remembering, right, their freedom from Egypt. Okay? And for Jewish people to remember, hear this, to remember means to make present now. See where we got what we do from? Right. To remember means to make present. So when the ritual of the Passover meal, for example, they are making what happened all those years ago they are making it present in their life. That's a wonderful thing. And we inherited that from them. So we always, uh, Metzger makes the point, uh, Marty Mar makes the point, but we have to um, keep it in mind, all right? Um, and then on your slide, I have a quote. Um, Christianity, uh, and this is from my own, this is from my own research, I put it in. Christianity and Christian liturgy was born out of the experience of the Jewish people, which in Jesus encountered God in a new and deeper way. See, the early Christians who were Jewish and followed Jesus and listened to Jesus, they were encountering God. The God that they knew was active and present in their life. Through Jesus, they were encountering God in a new and deeper way. See? Okay? The sustained religious identity. Religious identity is so strong in Jewish history because no matter what happened, uh, and I'm no scripture scholar, believe me, but no matter what happened when you look at the Old Testament, you know, through exile and slavery and all, no matter what happened, they knew that God was with them. They knew it. 
That was their identity, and they had it, and trust, trusted trust. it, and had faith in it, right? So this sustained religious identity that prevailed through the exodus and exile was given new meaning in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the earliest Christians. And the unique pattern of death and resurrection became a hopeful message to them, okay? And gave identity to the Christian community. Community, all right? Oh, goodness, this is so rich, I think. I hope you're as excited as I am. This is so good. I was or, surprised yeah. to read that the, um, the new Christian community, that, that they didn't separate themselves out from the temple, but they were kind of kicked out. That's, that's exactly right. That I, I didn't. Because of all the Gentiles. <laughs> I didn't really realize that before. Yeah. I, I, I guess I always assumed that they separated themselves. Not right away. Yeah. No. They were still Jewish, but experienced God in a deeper way in and through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You see, it, it didn't happen overnight. It, it developed. That's a really good point that you picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. So what happened then, um, Sunday, now, the day of the resurrection, okay, became the new Sabbath, celebrating the risen Christ. But they are still Jewish. So in a sense, Christianity was a sect within Judaism in the beginning, okay? They just expanded what they were doing to, to celebrate um, what they believed was Christ still with them after his death and believing in his resurrection. So Sunday, the day of the resurrection, becomes the new Sabbath, all right? Um, and Metzger um, mentions this when he writes about the second and third century. Um, and we'll talk more about Sunday in particularly when we talk about the liturgical year. Because Sunday is the first feast day. In the beginning of the development of the liturgical year, all we have is Sunday, the day of the resurrection. And every Sunday was looked at as like a little Easter. Still is. Mm. Still is. Still is. Right? Um, okay. Uh, all right. So Metzger, I have the quote from page 9. The liturgies of the first centuries proclaimed the instructions and prayers in a living manner, according to the schemes that had become traditional and were transmitted from memory. And... Um, he also points out that archaeology is helpful for our understanding. I mentioned that before. And in, from age to age, you actually see diagrams of what buildings uh, look like. So he brings up that as well. <clears throat> so we always have to keep in mind that Christianity was born in Palestine and originated in a Jewish world, all right, and was shaped by these Jewish beginnings, okay? Jesus was Jewish. He was Jewish. And his message was understood and emerged from the context of Jewish culture. It was also influenced a little later on, uh, I think it's important to say, it was also 
influenced later on by um, the Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. And um, because after Jesus' death, uh, Christianity spread to larger towns. See, it spread. It spread. And so it, it spreads to larger towns and cities where this Greek culture is more predominant and is influencing. And that's why what I mentioned last week, then uh, the Greek was the language that they prayed. Uh, uh, so mass was in Greek at first. Okay? Uh, not too many people know that. It, it was it was in it was in Greek first, not Aramaic. It was in Greek. Yeah. As it spread. Okay. And we have remnants of that. I think I mentioned it last week, for example, with the Kyrie Eleison. That's Greek, not Latin. That's Greek. Okay? Alright. And so that's just little points here and there that I think are interesting. Alright? Um
St. Augustine, uh, prime figure, and then uh, Sister Egeria. We'll talk about her next week. There's a book on your uh, bibliography called Egeria's Travels. She was a nun from Spain who went to Jerusalem for Holy Week. And she taught us a lot about these ancient liturgies. Um, she was very helpful in my study of the Paschal Trinity. <laughs> um, okay, so. So in um, Metzger, in chapter two, um, he talks about the New Testament as the principal source. And that goes along with uh, Carlos's question about the New Covenant, all right? So, you know, because that's the source for the study of the first Christian institutions. Then he talks about assemblies, all right? Keep that word in your vocabulary. He talks about assemblies or what's called in Greek synaxis, which means congregations. All right, and um, on pages 18 and 19 in Metzger, this is all on your handout, um, he says, all these gatherings and acts of the risen Christ are constitutive of the Christian assembly in its highest form. Now, a little bit of commentary here, keep in mind, all of this develops from everything Jesus said and what he did. And what did he always do? He gathered people, right? And particularly for meals, right? You can always find him having meals with somebody, but he gathered. And that becomes an important thing, the gathering, right? So. Uh, continuing with this, gathering together, recognizing the risen one, proclaiming the word, breaking bread, and taking a meal and sending into mission. You see something developing here? Yes. Right? This is the oldest known Eucharistic formula, and it's found in the Didache, the ancient thing. Now, just a note, fast forward to contemporary time, right? talking about uh, music, right? Something we hear. When we begin our liturgy of the Eucharist, what do we do? Aldemar, what do we do to begin? Oh, uh, entrance hymn? The entrance. Okay. Hopefully. Yeah. And we sing a hymn, right? Or a song. Or song. <laughs> Let's not get into it. No, I know. I know. Now, this is kind of technically a gathering hymn. The opening hymn that we call it is a hymn that gathers us into one body. That's the purpose of it. We become one voice in song. See? And here in the ancient church and the dedicator talking about the importance of the assembly you know the hymn and i'm going to talk from my musical knowledge now should not stop because the presider and the ministers got to where they need to be it's not traveling music i don't mean to be crass but it's not it's a hymn that gathers us and we should technically when the presider should have a hymn book 
It's an argument my husband always has with the kids he works with. They share the hippocampus. It's at the tone that we sing. And we don't begin then in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, sometimes, and I'm going to be a little critical here, it's an observation. And I've experienced this a lot. The priest celebrant will get to the presider's chair and say, let us begin. We already began. <coughs> That's the problem. You see? It's a problem. We began already. We began And this is where it doesn't need explanation. There's so much power in, if we're at a mass with music, you know, the music stops. And just that gesture in the name of the Father and of the Son, see? That you don't need to commentate it or let us begin. I, there's one priest that I love so dearly that he always says, let us begin as we begin all things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's not in the Roman Muslim? No. Really? No. He's in Spanish, we don't say No, but you're not supposed to. Right. That's my point. The rubrics. Because we began already. The rubrics, there's, it's, you make the sign of the cross. That's my point. Right, I want you to catch red. that. You shouldn't, you should, the priest should not say, let us begin. Because the point here is we began already. Mm. When we gathered, and then the, the gathering hymn was the, the symbol of us gathering into one voice, one body. And then that action of the sign of the cross isn't the beginning. It's there for a reason, because here we have gathered in the name of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it doesn't need commentary. It's not supposed to have a commentary, and all it takes is looking at the Roman Missal. There's no commentary. Right, don't add to it. That, that's right. Does don't that make sense? It. I want to be clear. It doesn't need it. They, nobody <laughs> should be saying, and, and again, I have to reiterate, I don't want to make you all liturgical critics, because that can be so obnoxious. <laughs> in plain English, you can. And I've been there, and I've done that. And it can be obnoxious, but as graduate students, future priests, future deacons, future lay ecclesial ministers, you need to know what it's supposed to be like. Right? All right? The church knows what it's doing. It's prayer. Absolutely. All right, I think I made my point. Just for clarity, I think, I think it was you who said it, uh, when the second person enters the church, that's when the mass begins, or? Let's say it again. I was told uh, during the studies here, we were talking about when does the mass begin, and somebody had said it's when the second person enters the church. You know what? I would go back further. It begins when I'm getting ready to leave my house. I'm driving in the car. You know, I arrive. I go in. You're preparing to celebrate the mysteries. Like really good stuff, right? Okay, we're gonna get through the yeah, second. Okay, all right, you good? You all good over there? Okay. Um, Metzger also talks about meals of the community. See, the word community comes up a lot in the Lord's Supper, um, and he notes the difference between. 
between the common meal and the Eucharistic meal. It's like the Eucharistic meal in the beginning was something they just added on to what they were already doing. And, and I'll, I'll explain in a moment. Because Metzger also notes that any meal is already an encounter, even a communion with God. All right? Now, I'm going to explain that. Uh, in, in Judaism, all right? And this is what I meant before. Jesus was always gathering people for a meal. You know, do you have something to eat? Yeah, I, I once worked with a young priest and once in a homily he said, Jesus must have weighed 300 pounds. <laughs> 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 he was always eating. Yeah, but he was always walking, though. <laughs> I know, I know. It was a joke. Yeah. But anyway, I don't think that. I think he was really healthy. But anyway, so um, in... Keep in mind, Jesus was sharing meals with who? Sinners. Tax collectors, prostitutes, you name it. Lawyers. Lawyers, whatever. I don't know. Well, the point is all sorts of people. Now hear this, because this is important. In Judaism, to share a meal meant that I share life with you. So when Jesus was sharing meals with tax collectors and others, for example, the Jewish leaders were critical and thought he must be sharing life with them. And guess what? He was. He was. He was. They were exactly right. Isn't that beautiful? That is so beautiful, right? So I think that we need to remember in the first Eucharistic celebrations that they were similar to synagogue meetings, which included readings, a meal, and fellowship, okay? They, this is the point. They expressed communion in one single body. That's the spirit experiencing communion. That's what we need to experience when we go to Mass on Sunday. That we're not there for ourselves. I'm there for you. I hope you're there for me. We need to be with each other, supporting each other as a community in faith. Right? Building up the body of Christ. Building up the body of Christ. That we belong to a body. You know, just, you know, going back to what I, when we talked about baptism before. In and through baptism, we cease to live in isolation. Baptism is conversion to Christ, but it's conversion to a community. And when we talk about the right of Christian initiation of adults later on, I'll make that point again. <clears throat> but it means I belong to a body, and that's the vocation I'm living out, that we are one. One body in Jesus Christ. And we get that from what Jesus did and what he said. All right? Um, so just for the sake of time, let me just move here uh, to what else uh, Metzger is saying here. And I don't want to rush through stuff. If I have to pick up next week, that's fine. I don't care about that. We'll always catch up at the end. 
but he also considers the places that were used for these gatherings or these assemblies. You know, it's interesting that the word assembly comes out of first century Christianity. We don't hear that word assembly again until after the Second Vatican Council. You know? We don't hear it. We were congregation. It's a little different. A little different. A little different. Okay? So the, for the Jewish people, the temple was the place of sacrifice. Right? And we know Jesus went to the temple. Right? We read about it in scripture. He went to the temple or its worship, but the synagogue, which means a gathering place, okay, was a place for study and gathering, and it probably developed when the Jews were in exile, and they were away from the temple. So they formed these places where they could gather uh, during this time, probably around the 6th century BC, all right? Um, a synagogue existed probably everywhere, right? Uh, everywhere Jewish people lived. It was a place where local people gathered. So you see, we inherit this idea of gathering from our, our Jewish brothers and sisters. And we know, we can be sure, Jesus would have attended a synagogue when he was growing up in Nazareth. Right? The synagogues were also places where Jesus and his disciples went and taught, right, and healed people, right? So the Jewish disciples didn't reject Judaism or its practice of study and prayer initially, right? They were Jewish, right? And they, they just experienced God in a deeper way through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. So for much of the first century, the followers of Jesus continued to go to the synagogue, all right? But in time, they began to be viewed as a separate sect, right, as Barbara pointed out. Um, and it's probably, according to Metzger, I think around 80 AD, that there was kind of some slander against these people um, who were followers of Jesus, and it began to uh, they didn't like that um, this was seeping into their synagogue meetings. They didn't like it, um, again. Um, so the disciples probably departed from the Jewish synagogues at this point of time. But they didn't abandon their way of prayer. They brought it with them, right? Um, so they most likely, uh, Metzger points out, um, um, pretty sure that's where I read it, that they uh, formed their own synagogues for their communi Christian communities, what we now call in the early Christian communities. And I think that um, one of the clearest places we can get a sense of all this is in the Acts of the Apostles. That those are, that is the story of the beginnings of the church. And that's, you know, uh, all we have to go to, to get a lot of this um, as well. Um, let me just ask deacon candidates, do you have something after class? You don't? Okay. All right. I think it used to in old days. used to have night prayer. Okay. But you don't? No. Okay. All right. Um, so the Acts of the Apostles suggest that meetings eventually took place in private homes. 
This is important when we're talking about uh, places for gathering, the house churches, okay? So I have it on your notes. The home was important as the center of the family meal because for the Jewish people, the meal was a sacred act and recalled God's faithfulness. We mentioned that before. It was a sign of, um, a living sign of the covenant. That's a beautiful thing when we think about meals and the sacredness of meals and how in our culture today, we kind of don't have that. You know, the people are here, there, and everywhere that we don't take the time, you know, to, to do that. But um, the point here that he makes is that meals include prayers and ritual actions. And, the, and again, I use the example of the um, Passover meal. But the point here that I want to make is that this idea of the house church, people's houses, let's say if Doug had a big house and he, it would be used that we all the early Christians, we'd go to his house, the house church, because he could accommodate a gathering of people. All right? Now, this is the beautiful thing, and we read this in scripture. All right? I don't have any samples for you, but it's in there. That the church is often referred to, especially, I believe, like I said, I'm not a scripture scholar, but in St. Paul, as the household of Christ. That's where it comes from, this idea of this, these gathering places in people's homes. All right? So after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples continued to gather in homes of fellow believers. But they also borrowed public buildings if they needed to, that could accommodate them. And it's in these gathering spaces that the word is proclaimed, teaching took place, healing was offered, and they broke bread. So the point here to remember is you see a pattern developing, right? And it's interesting to note that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper in a borrowed room. Right? Okay? And he appeared to uh, the disciples in the same room, borrowed room after this resurrection, right? Okay, so let's see, we've got like five minutes. So these spaces become the central gathering places for the community. So what do we get here? The model for church in, in the apostolic era is community. The community gathers around the table. And the table is symbolic of Jesus Christ in their midst. That's a beautiful thing. And we say the same thing about the altar today. Right? A lot of people don't know that either. But that's important. And this is where it comes from. And gathering around the table to share a meal. To, to, to listen to the word, to teach, to proclaim, etc. They're gathering with the risen Lord. Act, the risen Lord is actualized. Is pre, pre, they trust that the risen Christ is there with them 
this. That's what we do, right? And I, um, this is um, this is a really beautiful thing, and I, I think it's from Metzger. I'm pretty sure. But um, and it's on your slide, um, and it's a quote actually from Scripture, one Peter. But it, he says, like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus. And now, it was uh, moving down on your slide, it was the assembly. This is important. And maybe we'll wrap it up here and I'll open it up for questions. And then I'll continue next week. It was the assembly not the building that was the true temple. Now, this is important. And it was important in first century Christianity. It's important today. And the Greek word ecclesia, translated as church, did not refer to the building, but to the believers. So during the pandemic, when everybody, you know, you hear the churches are closed, not true. They weren't. Because we are the church. And all you have to do, some of you have studied ecclesiology, go to Lumen Gentium. And it's right there. The church is the people. The people. The people of God, the body of Christ. You see? So you see, what we're getting at here in this development, I just referred to a Vatican II document that is reiterating something of first century Christianity. That's what I mean by deeply conservative. <laughs> deeply. That's a beautiful thing. You know, prior to the Second Vatican Council, people wouldn't have, the church was the building or the institution. But to be able to say, we are the church, we are the body of Christ, you know? There's a hymn, you might know it, it's not a very good musically, but Christopher Walker wrote it for children, and it's called We Are the Church. When I was in Pat, you probably don't even know it, but anyway, he wrote it, and I made sure that every kid in that parish knew that song, because I wanted them, to, and we sang it at mass, uh, masses with children, but the point was that every kid knew that they are the church, because they sang it, you know, it was a beautiful thing, but we all have to know that, and then we have to bring it to others. You know, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. That is our inheritance from uh, this first century. You know, um, and remembering that in the first century, um, the apostles were still there. Uh, next week, I thought we'd start with the fourth, but we'll go to the second and third. That's okay. That uh, and Metzger points out that uh, the second and third century are very distinct from the first century, why do you think? Anybody? Who's not there? The apostles are right. not there. Right. The apostles are not there. So it, it makes a distinction. Because, you know, in the beginning, the apostles were there. People that had that, can you imagine, to walk with Jesus, to pray with Jesus. Yeah. Now they're not there. And the beautiful thing is, is that the trust and the belief in the faith remains. And they, yes. they realized Jesus wasn't coming back. That's what it says. Eventually they realize he's not coming back now. That's what it said. Right. Write it down yeah. before they, they lost it. Hmm. Well, they had to, they had to 
own it. Yes. Put it to writing. Yes, because could you imagine if you think somebody's coming back, like next week, and they don't? You know? Imagine the, the trust level, the faith level, that had to be there for what we're talking about here tonight to be 2,000 plus years later. Here we are. So, um, they were also then planning for as the apostles themselves were not there. Exactly. Re, you know, replacing them as far as leadership. The leadership or, changes, yes. And that was a real focus that the leadership has to be developed. Yes, very good, very good. Make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, you good? Yep. Slate? Everybody up on Zoom? Thumbs up? Okay, I would say just continue to read Metzger, and next week we're going to go to second and third, fourth century, and then I'm not sure. But be assured, some of you have had me before, we always finish the syllabus, right? Yes, absolutely. But everybody falls behind, but it's okay because I don't want to rush through important things, okay? This is just, I just want to say one more thing. Um, I, I think this works without the PowerPoint up, if you have it. Is everybody happy? You're not sad? It's better to see our friends, right, our fellow students. I think so. I'm delighted to see you all. Is there, um, is, is there a way to, is there a way that you can put the power, you, can you split the screen? Oh, they are. I'll ask Cynthia, but I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, it, 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 I think, I'll ask her, but I don't think so. Okay. I, I get a little frustrated without it because I used to point to it, whatever, yeah. but for me, this is more important, you know? My only suggestion would be is if you label them uh, or number, number them. I know. I yeah. thought of it after I saved it to a PDF. It was already done. But it was easy to follow. Yeah. But I will. I'll, I will number them because I numbered my own. But the only other thing I want to say that my goal is always by Tuesday night to have the notes in files. So you have them for Wednesday. Um, I, I added, and I jump it ahead. You don't have to do it yet, but the book review guide is in file. Ignore it for now if you want, but don't if you want it. I know somebody asked last week, but I put it up, and that's the one that Father Matthew Ernest designed, and he was gracious enough that I didn't have to figure out my own uh, that we could share. So uh, anybody who uh, takes a course would be using that guide. So. Um, this is uh, just such an honor and a privilege to be here talking about this wonderful, wonderful topic. And so we end tonight uh, going back to all the things that we need to do. The day is not over yet. And we end glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.